Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Jabot and over the course of this podcast series, I'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. In this episode of The Case Files, we'll be discussing industrial disease and how the failure to provide a safe working environment can lead to innocent workers losing their lives. In particular, we'll be meeting people who've been affected by the devastating effects of the fatal disease mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is caused by exposure to asbestos, the tiny fibres which used to be used in many building materials. It's left far too many families across the country in grief. All things being equal, he would have lived to be 83. And that, for me, was horrific. That was terrible that he'd been taken away from us. We could have had all that extra time with him. We'll find out how mesothelioma can affect people years after they were exposed to asbestos. Somewhere, some little bloody white fibres got inside me and just lay there very quietly for 35 years and then manifest themselves into mesothelioma and give me a death sentence. And we'll ask what responsibility employers have for this nationwide problem and what can be done to get justice for sufferers and their families. It's the single biggest workplace killer in the UK. Because of the latency period, on average of 30 to 40 years for mesothelioma, we're sadly likely to see many new cases every year for some time. Mesothelioma is an aggressive and incurable type of cancer that develops in the lining of some of the body's organs, usually the lungs. It's caused by asbestos exposure. It typically takes years, often decades, to manifest itself. And so most people are diagnosed between the ages of 60 and 80. Asbestos was banned in the 1980s, but widely used in buildings before then, despite the dangers being known. It's often associated with industries such as shipbuilding and construction. However, it takes only the slightest exposure for fibres to be ingested. And more and more cases are coming to light where people have been exposed through other means. For example, when washing their partner's dirty overalls, cleaning up asbestos, or when it's been disturbed in buildings such as schools. Slater and Gordon has worked with hundreds of families investigating how sufferers were exposed to asbestos. We're going to begin by hearing from Natalie Hazelhurst. Natalie's father, Gordon Marriott, died in 2010 from the disease. She told me about him. He was a huge character. He was very charismatic. He would light up a room and he was one of those people. Um, I was um, a teacher at the time and he would come and invigilate. And, you know, when someone, when he used to work in the staff room, everybody would look because he just had that presence. And he was really, really good fun. And we used to, because um, my mum, we call my mum Mrs Bouquet. And my dad, so like my dad and I both love a drink. And when we used to go out, he used to be a member of a club and we'd go to the bar and he'd say, is your mother looking? And I'd say, she's not looking. He'd say, go, right, let's get some doubles in quick. And we would, <laughs> we would really uh, embarrass my mum, yeah. So when and why did he think something was wrong? We'd gone away, it was Father's Day, so 
June time. Um, we were staying in a really posh hotel and we'd palm them off with the grandchildren in a caravan. And I can remember um, it was a really hot day and he was so fit. He used to play golf every single day and always had done. And that started to... He was out of breath. He was struggling a little bit and he wasn't... He, he never said no to anything, my dad. He was so positive and... <laughs> Just like the the golf, it was like he'd have to think, he'd have to... And I just remember him sitting, it was at the seaside, and I can remember him sitting on a wall and just his breathing, and he was tired out. And I remember thinking and, and knowing and just having a feeling that that wasn't right, that, that there was something amiss, definitely. In fact, Gordon was seriously ill with mesothelioma, He'd been exposed to asbestos when working as an electrician. At first, Gordon didn't discuss his illness with his children. It was probably about four months that he knew and he decided he didn't want us to sort of know um, when he knew that it was a terminal illness. I think he tried to protect us and he thought that it would... And he was sort of an eternal optimist. He always looked on the bright side. And I genuinely think a little bit of that was that he believed that he was going to he was gonna crack it, he was going to be OK, he would be that person. And I think he tried to shield us maybe with a little bit of, I don't know if it was naiveness on his part as well. But eventually Gordon told his children. I can remember exactly, I could tell you everything about the day. Um, and my mum, obviously they decided that they had to tell us and it was sort of my job as spokesperson to tell my brothers. Um, and I still, and again... I can remember getting the diagnosis and I, I am quite like my dad, I am quite positive. And I do remember thinking, yeah, but we'll be okay, we'll be, it doesn't matter, we'll, it will be all right for us. And I can remember my mum saying, you know, it's, it's terminal, it's... And I still, honestly, you know, I, I doubted everything and thought he would be the one. And I, 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 there was a point where I remember my dad, my dad had asked how long he had and how long the person who sort of recorded had lasted the longest. And I remember he said to the nurse, he doubled it and said, well, that's going to be me, that's going to be my focus. And, and, and that was my dad. And we all, we all believed that. Despite Gordon's personal strengths, he got ill quickly. My dad was such a strong character. He was a big man and to actually see him and that's one of the things I'll never forget when he was he'd had um like the lining of his pleura removed in hospital and he'd gone into um sort of critical care just for a short time and I can remember seeing him and he was vulnerable and that's the first time ever I'd seen him vulnerable and that was probably one of the most difficult things he was like a little you know, when you see a little tiny kitten or so, he was weak and that, I feel, because my dad would have hated to have been uh, portrayed as, as, as weak. That, that was the worst. That would have been the worst for him and it was actually the worst for me to see it. And at the end, we decided that we were going to nurse my dad at home. Um, well, my brothers, we were doing a roach and we weren't... There was no nurses. We were just... It was just going to be us because I think part of his pride and because he was such a big character, he didn't want strangers. He, I, if I'm honest, I don't think actually initially he wanted us to see him like that. 
my brothers and, and me, but actually, you know, because if you're nursing someone 24-7 at the end, it's it's a tough gig. And, and it did end up and we did see him and and that was difficult. I think it was difficult for him and I know he was conscious and I know he felt that. The illness took such a toll that Natalie was grateful the end came quickly. Do you know what? I, I never thought I would say this when I've heard other people, but thankfully it, it wasn't that long. And I, I honestly believe that was because of my dad's disposition as well. I think it, it was quick, it was horrid, but it was it was quick. I'd made the other thing because I've got um, I've got well I've got four children now. At the time I had three children, and I decided I absolutely didn't want them to see my dad at the end. And it, I can tell you everything. It was really it was it was summer. It was hot, and they were playing. We used to have a curtain because his bed was downstairs. And my um, my third child was in a little playpen. She used to play peekaboo behind the curtain, and it actually it sounds. But it, there were points where it was beautiful, where it was where it should have been. And I can remember the girls being outside in the garden and making the decision that I was going to take them in to see him because all along I thought that was wrong for them. And I, when they came in, because my dad was not really cogent, he wasn't conscious, and he did, and he's and I don't know... I don't know if it was divine inspiration, I don't know what it was, but he was animated and his face lit up and it, it was like just a sheer closeness, if that makes sense, in the darkest time. It was, it was real, it was, it was love. Gordon was 70 years old when he died. We'll hear more from Natalie shortly. I also spoke to David Nurse and his wife Jane. David is 76 and has mesothelioma. The first sign of the disease was a pain in his side. He then began to notice he was struggling more than usual on his regular rounds of golf. I was starting to get a little bit breathless towards the end of 18 holes. Um, the course I play is, is, is quite hilly and quite challenging. And I was just coming up to my... 75th birthday at that time and I sort of put it down to I was getting a little bit out of shape and getting a bit older and um, and I just needed to get him back shape and I think I mentioned at that time to Jane um, I might join a gym. David went to the doctor and then went through a range of tests. It took nearly 10 months before he finally got a diagnosis of mesothelioma. I couldn't really believe it. I thought there's got to be a mistake somewhere. I'm too well. And especially um, once they gave me the diagnosis, it was mesothelioma, and we started looking into it and finding out what a, 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 a really nasty thing mesothelia was. Um, then I'd, I'd, I couldn't believe I'd got something so wrong with me because I, I didn't feel ill. I was coping, I was getting around and I was doing fine. So I think, I think it was just denial. I, I, I didn't think I'd got anything seriously wrong. But then the common sense kicks in and tells you there must be, that they're not that wrong. David's wife Jane remembers what they were told in hospital. 
you live for four to seven months, even though you feel quite fit and well. If you're lucky, you might get 12 months. There is no treatment because chemotherapy is the standard treatment for this disease. But if you have chemotherapy, it will make you bad and it only extends your life by up to three months. So you're better off having four to seven months of reasonable quality life rather than us giving you treatment when you're asymptomatic, which will make you feel ill and will only extend you for three months. So go away and have a nice life. So what is mesothelioma? Lorraine Creech is head of nursing at the charity Mesothelioma UK. Mesothelioma is classed as a rare cancer and currently there's no cure for mesothelioma. Um, once it's uh, established, um, it can be very rapidly progressive. Uh, and it usually affects the membranes of the lung, which are called the pleura. This is pleural mesothelioma. And that accounts for about 90% of cases. It can also affect the peritoneal membranes, um, which line the abdomen, and that's called peritoneal mesothelioma. About 2,700 people are diagnosed with mesothelioma in the UK each year. Lorraine told me about the main symptoms of the disease. Breathlessness, which can be due sometimes to a collection of fluid within those pleural linings, and this is called a pleural effusion, or a cough, pain sometimes along the chest wall, uh, loss of appetite, weight loss, fatigue, uh, and sometimes sweating. It can be completely devastating, obviously, both physically, psychologically and emotionally. It completely changes um, people's lives, unfortunately. Um, there is no cure, and to be told that you have a very life-limiting disease is so difficult to, to deal with. And also, usually because it is due to asbestos, it's getting your head around that and the changes that that has um, made within your life. So that can make people feel very angry, particularly when we think that it probably was entirely preventable. David felt like his doctors were not offering him any hope for the future. I wasn't being offered anything. Nobody was sort of saying, well, we can do this for you and we can do that for you. And there's an operation available that you could have that would help you to prolong life or help you to get rid of some of it. Nothing like that was offered. It was just, um, it, it, it was just as if I'd been written off. David and Jane drove back from hospital after hearing his terrible diagnosis. On the drive home, we had decided that, no, we weren't lying down and taking this. He was too fit and well, and we were going to do something about it. That it couldn't just be that there was nothing you could do. So that's when um, I started doing the research, and you have to find out for yourself. And that's why David is so adamant that people need to get all the information. And one of the reasons why we want to support Mesothelioma UK because we want them to be able to help others who are in our boat, who are away from centres of excellence, to be able to not suffer from a postcode lottery and to be able to get that information so that they can make the appropriate decision for them. After much research and help from Mesothelioma UK, David went to a hospital in Leicester where they performed pioneering surgery, as Jane explained. It's an extended pleurocotomy and decortication. Um, 
is the title of the operation that he had. It's quite a lengthy operation and is one of the most uh, uh, complex ones that they do. Um, my understanding is it's even more complex than some heart surgery that takes place. And um, it involves um, dealing with the pleura around the lungs, which is where the mesothelioma grows, and um, removing painstakingly these two layers of pleura, which are called the parietal and the visceral pleura, I believe, um, and painstakingly scraping them away and taking them away um, so that hopefully the mesothelioma is reduced uh, macroscopically as you can see it. Now, in addition to doing the plural operation around, um, David also had um, some of his diaphragm removed and also uh, a patch put across his pericardial uh, pericardium, his pericardial sac. And the reasons for that are, I understand, because the disease is most likely to spread to those areas if it develops away from the pleura. And there's also the decortication part of the surgery, which my understanding is uh, where the lungs are actually scraped if there's any of the mesothelioma cells which have um, gone through onto the the uh, wall of the lungs after the uh, pleura have been removed and, and scraped and so on. David was in surgery for about 10 hours. David told me it wasn't hard to decide to have the operation. Easiest decision I've ever made in my life. I wanted something to be able to fight. And it gave me something to fight with. And I wasn't just going to bloody die because it suited people. I wanted to be able to fight it. Nothing was going to put me down without me trying first. And it offered me a chance to fight it. And I bloody took it with both hands straight away. I spoke to David and Jane 18 months after that operation, so he survived considerably longer than originally anticipated. The couple have also won a legal battle to get compensation from the company whose negligence led him to be exposed to asbestos. Madeleine Holdsworth from Slater and Gordon worked on David and Jane's case. David worked as an employee of a brewery at a hotel. So his role involved him running the pub, making the beer, serving the customers. Um, he recalled asbestos exposure from the cellar where he did all his beer making. So he wasn't working in an asbestos heavy industry. He um, had clear recollection of pipes lagged with asbestos and a boiler being lagged with asbestos that he came into contact with. And he also remembered a renovation works whereby workmen came in and removed pipes which were lagged with asbestos while he was working around them. We obtained the best medical evidence, leading engineering evidence. But what made the world of difference in this case was with the help of David and his family, we managed to trace witnesses, so people he worked with and also customers of the pub who were able to back up what David recalled about the, the events that happened. David found it hard to have what he was saying doubted by the defence. 
She was making statements like, well, of course, the pub would have been closed if there was working with asbestos. It wasn't. Nobody did things like that in those days. The pub stayed open. I was ordered to keep the pub open. I wasn't allowed to close it. I was on my own, no staff, nobody to do everything. I had to do everything, all the cleaning, all the work, and I got to be there at all times to supervise um, workmen because I couldn't have them in a pub with many thousands pounds worth of stock and things like that and tools and, and not be there to supervise. Jane played a key role in supporting David throughout the case. I had to try and work with him to understand that he wasn't being accused of lying, it was just a legal process, and that's what Madeline always wanted us to hold on to, that it was a legal process and it wasn't personal. But it feels personal when people are saying, well, maybe you haven't even got this disease or, you know, you couldn't have had this, that and the other happen. So I found that quite challenging. And I also found it quite challenging to uh, help with tracking down witnesses and thinking about where we could go to get more evidence to support David's um, statements and so on, particularly as I hadn't lived through it at the time so I had to hear all about the the horrible things that he prefers to forgetting his life and make him go over and over it again and again to be able to get the evidence together. Madeline told me that she often has to go back in time to build a case. These cases are so difficult because we are talking about events which occurred many years ago, 30, 40, sometimes 50 years ago. People's memories fade and witnesses are often not available to speak to. Witness appeals are quite common in these sorts of cases. So we might run a newspaper story inviting witnesses to come forward. So people who worked with the claimant, the premises of the defendant at the same time doing a similar job or those people who may have a recollection of exactly what was involved in the job and where the asbestos was. And we also have to consult with an archive library of information that we hold at Slater and Gordon because often we've pursued the company previously and we're able to access information that we have gleaned in previous claims. Very often the company is no longer trading. Searches have to be carried out to trace the correct defendant company and further searches have to be carried out in order to trace the employer's liability insurance for that company during the relevant period. Madeline says that cases of mesothelioma keep coming. It's the single biggest workplace killer in the UK. Because of the latency period, on average of 30 to 40 years for mesothelioma, we're sadly likely to see many new cases every year for some time. Madeline works hard to get cases through the courts quickly, but sometimes it takes too long for her clients to get results for themselves. We do all we can to get these cases through the court system as soon as possible so that that peace of mind can be provided. But sadly, very often the claim is started by the victim and continued by the widow. Natalie Hazelhurst and her family also took legal action against her father's former employer, NG Bailey, and won. The employer settled without putting them through a court battle. She told me the family wants to make people take the problem seriously. It's a huge killer and people don't know that. My dad, you know, it was all about the point of 
making it people aware and trying to get some recognition and, and to try and stop it and to we know worldwide asbestos is still used it's still until very recently and that's that's shocking natalie remembers the inquest into her father's death the thing that really really upset me and probably more if i'm honest that was my worst day i don't think my brothers are my mum it was so bad for them, but it was when the coroner said, you know, sort of, Ceritus Paribus, all, all things being equal, he would have lived to be 83. And that, for me, was horrific. That was terrible that he'd been taken away from us when we could have had, if everything had gone to plan, if he'd lived, you know, under normal circumstances, we could have had all that extra time with him. He could have met his other granddaughter. He could have... You know, seen all of us achieve so many things and that was taken away. David's surgery has given him more time to spend with Jane, but he knows that the asbestos he breathed in years before is taking away his health and eventually will end his life. People like me were just going about their day-to-day business of trying to go to work, work hard make some money to support their family and to try to live a good, decent life. And somewhere, some little bloody white fibres escaped and got out and whatever, got inside me and just lay there very quietly for 35 years and then suddenly decided to manifest themselves into mesothelioma and give me a death sentence. Thanks to David and Jane Nurse, as well as Natalie Hazelhurst for telling me their stories. Thanks also to Madeline Holdsworth from Slater and Gordon and Lorraine Creech from Mesothelioma UK. If you want to know more, have a look at the website slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast or head over to the social media channels and search hashtag casefilespod and join the conversation. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.